Africa has a huge reservoir of untapped technical talent, and tech companies have a huge amount of work that they need skilled employees for. Andela is a talent accelerator that finds people in Africa who are eager to learn software skills, and then trains them in a six-month boot camp and pairs them with jobs at companies such as Microsoft. Bryce Kingsa is the Director of Engineering at Andela, and he joins the show today to discuss Andela. This episode touches on many of the themes of Software Engineering Daily. Boot camps, scaling an organization, microservices, the future of work, obviously Africa. It's quite an interesting episode. Hope you enjoy it. Bryce Kenza is the Director of Engineering for Ondala. Bryce, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me, Jim. So, what is Ondala? So, Ondala is a talent um, accelerator. So, we, we re- recruit the most talented people, young people in Africa, and we train them to be world-class technologists. Okay, and how do people join Ondala? So we have a recruitment program, um, and we have applications that go out every quarter, I think. Um, We're currently recruiting people in Nigeria and in Kenya. And through this application process, what are the types of people that join Andela? What are their ages, or what's the prototypical type of person that ends up joining the accelerator? Right. Um, So we have people, usually young people, between, I believe... 19 to 25, 26, and usually people from a wide range of backgrounds. So we have people who have, who have previously completed computer science degrees, engineering degrees, some people who have no experience in computer science at all, um, some people coming from you know, radio or music or you know, all different kinds of backgrounds who are just interested in tech and software development. Those people who don't have formal training do they have some sort of self-taught experience, like having taken some Coursera courses or something like that? Not, not always. Um, I think some, some of them have a really big interest in software development. Um, but as well, we do have an online curriculum that we expose to applicants so that they can kind of go in and um, try different things, learn the basics like HTML, CSS, the basics of computer science uh, before they actually apply to a program. Mm. So can you describe the application process in more detail? Because just for people who don't understand the scale, there's like thousands of people applying and a very small subset of people end up making it in. And so there's this multi-step application process where you screen people in a variety of ways. Explain some of the details of that application process. Sure. So, like I said, it begins with the online curriculum. So we encourage anybody that is interested in joining the program to go through the curriculum and kind of get uh, accustomed with the basics of computer science. Then they submit an application. Um, the application consists of a bunch of questions, um, maybe some uh, um, test questions. So around pro- uh, problem solving um, and uh, like the plump profile that is um, to and then the, the, the plump profile is essentially kind of like finding the archetype of the person 
so like their emotional intelligence and things like that. And then after after that, they complete a a test. So we have our own assessment platform that we have exposed to them, um, where they complete a couple of coding challenges. And after that, uh, a subset of them are recruited for a or as are selected for a two week boot camp. So during the two week boot camp, they come into our offices for a two week immersive boot camp, where they build you know uh, projects. Uh, web projects uh, during the two-week boot camp and after the two-week boot camp um, the selected few are admitted to the program. Right, and I I like the multi-step funnel. I like the benchmarking on emotional intelligence and it seems in somewhat contrast to the ways that standardized testing approve people or, or disapprove people from entering a college system, it seems a little bit more meritocratic, a little bit more aligned with what actually makes a person successful beyond their schooling period of education. Um, did you did you always have that that application process, or did you did you ha- did you start with a slightly different application process and iterate on it? We'd iterate on it. Um, I think the first application process was. More, there was no online curriculum. There was no um, so sort of testing per se. There was more around problem solving and emotional intelligence to figure out the, the best people that would be um, that that would succeed in the program. And um, we ended up getting a wide range of um, people. So and because we also want to kind of streamline our learning and the training program where we can predict how many people, um, how fast people can learn uh, to some extent. Um, so we needed to make sure that everybody coming in has some sort of baseline. So that's why we kind of added, started adding this multi-step process where we have the curriculum exposed so that people can start getting accustomed with uh, the, 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 learn, uh, the technologies and the, 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 the curriculum. And the two-week bootcamp was revised multiple times. We iterated on it on how to best select the the people, and um, yeah, so we it's it, it's a process we're we're always iterating on. Mm. So the two-week bootcamp, um, that's kind of interesting. So we've done a bunch of shows about bootcamps, coding bootcamps. Describe your coding bootcamp, what are the objectives, what are the types of coursework and curriculum that are focused on, and what are you benchmarking the participants on in that period of time? So the bootcamp is a two-week bootcamp. Um, the bootcamp is... And just to be clear, this is this is like, this is to... This is like the last phase of the screening process to see if 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 people get into Andela, and once they get Correct. once they get into Andela through that two week boot camp process, there is a six month training process. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. So the boot camp is the final step, right. like the final stage of the recruitment process, and anybody that makes it through the boot camp is officially officially accepted into the program. And yes, the first um, six months or so are the first phase of the learning, but the, over, the, the whole program is four years. But the first six months is just like the first uh, phase 
of the learning before um, our developers are, I guess you could, you could say this is the first graduation kind of thing where they become Andala developers. Yeah. Right. So four years, that's uh, almost like, a, sounds like a university education. But So I, I am curious a little bit more about this boot camp process, and then we'll we'll get into a little bit more about what Andela is like once people make it through the entire application process. So what is what's going on during that boot camp where it's the last filter of deciding whether a applicant will make it into Andela? Right. Um, so the, the, the two-week boot camp is a very immersive um, period where um, we throw a lot of challenging problems at them and kind of see how um, we're looking for fast learners and see how they pick up the, the technologies and the languages that we're throwing at them. So the bootcamp um, typically start in the first week um, where we, we teach the fundamentals of computer science, HTML, CSS, and depending on the bootcamp, we run bootcamp in different languages. So we might run a bootcamp in Ruby or Python or JavaScript or PHP, for example. And the second week of the bootcamp is more project-based. So each um, individual in the bootcamp um, has to build a sort of web project within a, a specific amount of time. And at the end of the bootcamp, they present that project to everybody in the bootcamp. Right. Okay. And then some people perform well enough in the bootcamp to make it into the main curriculum of Andela. And... The, which is so there's the six month training process that happens after that and then people from Andela get hired by companies to do engineering work so we'll get into the discussion of companies hiring people but why don't you walk me through what goes on in that six month training process okay um so the six months the, the initial first six months of learning we like to call it learning because we we believe that um, everybody is a champion of their own learning, and Andela is really there just to facilitate that learning. So we're not necessarily training in the traditional sense where we're telling people what to do. Um, so during that six months, or the, that, that first six months, is a combination of simulations and apprenticeship. And uh, simulations is essentially simulating a typical engineering team, right? So where you have Developers, you have a team lead, typically you have a product owner, and they have to build um, features based on priorities from the product owner. So we kind of simulate that environment, um, and we have different uh, simulations teams um, building products um, using different languages. So Ruby on Rails, Django, Laravel, or JavaScript, or PHP, or Sorry, or, or which one did I miss? Uh, anyways, and and we, we also do mobile development, so Android and iOS. I think it was and Java. So that's the first day. Yeah, so that's that's the first um, about the, the the first stage of um, the learning process. And then what we've seen is that while simulation is great to simulate that kind of uh, engineering environment, um, it still doesn't have the it's still not enough because number one the project they're building are not really used by anyone they're kind of like training projects 
and the pressure is not there to deliver it, right? Um, so what we do then is like we transition them into apprenticeship. And what that means is we have our own internal engineering team that is building our own technologies, our own systems to help Andela operate efficiently. So, so as part of their learning, we transition them into apprenticeship where they get to work with an actual engineering team that has users, that has um, deliverables, that has the pressure, that has all those things. And they get to apprentice under more experienced people where they get to observe how more experienced developers kind of think through problems, solve challenging problems, and think about building products. So they get to, so you can think of like apprenticeship as Andela being the first client for, for the developer. Hmm. Did you go through an academic computer science education? Yes, myself. I, I went to school at the University of Waterloo. Um, okay, that, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. And you you studied computer science. Yes, I studied computer science. Yeah. So, what is your so, so you know one of the ongoing discussions that we have on this show is like kind of what should software engineering education look like, or what should computer science education look like? Or are these different things? Are these disjoint topics? Are there is there some overlap? Um, I think it's interesting because. I think that there are the way the way that academic computer science is taught I feel like is kind of like the slow route to learning and I feel like when you have a program like Andela that is focused on teaching people to engineer products uh you and you bake in a feeling of pressure you bake in um I mean but, but the, the title of boot camp I mean we've done all these shows about boot camps like I mentioned and these boot camps have this feeling of pressure. They have these um, segments of, you know, you're working on a project all on your own. You have to learn this this ability of independence, but you also have to learn how to work in teams. And this is in stark contrast to, um, you know, many of the ways that academic computer science works. Of course, I think Waterloo is slightly different because Water, I think at Waterloo you're forced to do an internship or you, you're supposed yeah, to do an internship. program, yeah. Right. And I think, that, I'm pretty sure that was like part of the inspiration for Andela, but um, I am I'm very curious about your thoughts on education. How academic computer science compares to this boot camp model, uh, or this condensed education model? Is there anything that this condensed education model misses out on? Is there anything that is great about academia that cannot be sort of replicated or improved upon by the boot camp model or the mm-hmm you know, hyper, hyper condensation of education model. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I think the traditional academic model is great for learning the principles, I think. And the condensed uh, model is great at learning the, the, the practices and how to actually do it, how to actually build it. And I think that's where Waterloo was a, a really great school where the academic setting was focusing a lot on those principles, like computer science principles that are very important as a software engineer. And then the internship part kind of gave us like the practical experience. And that, that's the same thing that we kind of had to implement here at Andela um, because initially we, 
we've been iterating a lot on our learning practices. And initially, we were focusing a lot on the practice. And then we ended up getting um, client feedback that our developers didn't really know the, the principles, like principles of computer science. And so we big have to take notation. that feedback. Hello? But yeah, big O notation. Yeah, exactly. Big O notation, all those things. Um, so we had kind of take that feedback and figure out, okay, how can we ensure that our developers are not you know, missing out on all those fundamental principles, algorithms, data structures, big O notation, all those things, um, and ensure that our developers had kind of like the best of both worlds, uh, of both uh, worlds. So, and yeah. that's that stuff is not that hard to learn if you start with the practical material, right? Like that's my impression at least. Like if you start by teaching people how do you build practical stuff and then you say, okay, by the way, there's this thing called big O notation. By the way, here's this thing called Dijkstra's algorithm that's like a you know mm-hmm. kind of complicated algorithm. My impression is that the theoretical stuff is actually much easier to learn if you start with the practical rather than vice versa. And the the thing that I think academic com- computer science gets wrong is they teach the theoretical first and then they expect the practical to be easier because of that. Mm-hmm. I, I think... I think you're probably right. It's probably easier, um, but I feel if you get too deep in the practical and you start creating those behaviors um, as as a professional software engineer and not really thinking about the theory, like you, you kind of miss out on that. So I think it's it. I think it's a great discussion to have. I think um, you 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 need to learn the those principles before you get too deep into the practice because the behaviors you develop when you're practicing um, should be influenced by the principles that you, that you know about, right? Um, and I think, I, I, I personally feel like that makes you a better developer. Mm. And it sounds like the, that was some of the early feedback that you were also getting from these companies that were hiring people from Mondela, like, oh, these, these developers are really efficient, they're doing a great job, but they don't seem to understand theoretical efficiencies and things exactly. that you would learn by doing formal proofs and exactly interesting so let's talk let's talk more about that so when an ondella engineer comes out of the 6 month training process and i guess we haven't talked too much about that training process but people can probably imagine uh, oh, no, I guess you, you did mention that. There's the training. It's essentially sort of like a, you know, you replicate the, the the type of product development that would happen at a company, but it's more like in a training environment. So you kind of have some training wheels on. And then once you get out, you know, it sounds kind of like a residency for a medical personnel or something. Um, and after that, these people can get hired by big companies. How does a company hire Ondella engineers and what kinds of companies are are willing to hire Ondella engineers? Companies hire Ondella engineers just by contacting us from our uh, webpage or um, contacting one of our sales um, people. And the type of companies that we've seen that are interested in Ondella engineers have being from a wide spectrum, from big enterprises to small startups, um, mid-stage startups looking to expand their engineering teams. Hmm. And 
I have heard that some contracting, I mean, because because this is basically contracting, because the people are not fully, they're not they don't they don't become fully employed. Like if a Microsoft if Microsoft hires a team or some, several Andela engineers, those engineers are not full time Microsoft employees. They're Andela employees. Um, well. Oh. So, so, so that's not entirely right. So, oh, okay. yes, they, they are they are still Andela employees, but they are full members of the engineering team of our clients or partners. So they are they follow the the same processes that the company is using. They follow the same engineering processes. They are there on the stand up you know, team retrospective and all of that. And they are fully dedicated to um, the team of fully embedded in the, the, our partners teams. And we even have our developers fly out to um, the, those companies, campuses or, or offices overseas, in, in, you know, to fully immerse themselves into the teams and build relationships so that when they are, they are working remotely, you know, it's, it's more efficient. Mm. And but but what I have heard about people who are not full time employees is you know there are certain there are certain contracting firms that have a strong reputation that they've built up over time like Accenture for example Accenture has a has a great reputation so a bank for example is perfectly willing to hire Accenture to build its internal i don't know you know ticketing system or something so over time these contracting companies build a big powerful brand where where companies feel com- comfortable hiring them has that been an issue where you've had to sell companies on this idea that hey these engineers are great they're trustworthy i know ondella is a new brand but our engineers are just as good or probably better than the Accenture engineers and you should trust us. Has that been a challenge? Yes, absolutely. In the beginning, it was was a challenge um, selling to companies that our engineers are just as talented as anybody. And um, I mean, we had to, you know, uh, figure out different ways of approaching this. Um, But essentially, we... You know, we essentially told them, hey, try us out for a month. Um, and almost all of our clients were delighted by how embedded and how, you know, good our engineers were. And a lot of them feel that it's not a typical contracting firm. It's really just like an extension of my engineering team. It's really just um, re- remote workers that are part of my team. And once you get a company to try it out and if it works out within one team at a big company does it spread within the company do people talk about hey we tried out Andela they meshed with our team perfectly everybody in the company should try Andela D- does that spreading happen or or do you have to continue doing the sort of sales process throughout the organization to encourage other people to try hiring Andela engineers Absolutely, uh, that happens organically. Um, we've always said that our developers are our base salespeople, right? So as soon as they join a new company and they are doing a great job, they're delivering value, automatically we see those companies wanting to expand and even create an entire team around these 
you know, initial developers that, that joined the team. So um, definitely we, we see that a lot. Interesting. So you have a model where you you can kind of offer, hey, we can give you a whole team of people to work on a project uh, as opposed to just saying like, hey, you, you can just hire this one person and then, you know, maybe another team hires one person. You can you can offer actual just full teams to to carry out a project. Yes, absolutely. And um, I mean, as part of our um, for your program, like we said, we have a natural progression of, you know, experiences. So we have the um, initial developer, then we have, you know, we have developers at different levels, like developer, mid-level developer, team leads, um, and eventually architects and stuff like that. So we can definitely provide um, teams of engineers um, that are just kind of like an extension of the teams that the company already has locally. Now, my sense is that this, Andela happening now is no accident. It's not like suddenly somebody thought of the idea and and now it's the time. I mean, that is true to some extent, but also I think that there are tools and technologies and cultural movements that are all conspiring to make this work really well. Like my view is that outsourcing in the 90s, for example, probably didn't work as well as it could today because today there's all these tools for transparency and accountability and like, you know, obviously Slack and uh, other communication tools. I mean, we're having a VoIP call cross country and it's like no issue at all. And uh, we take it for granted at this point. And there's also, you know, reputation-based systems. I mean, companies are hiring Andela engineers with an with the idea that there is a reputation of the engineer that they're hiring, and that engineer is aware of their reputation, and they're not just going to slack off, uh, as opposed to how people thought about outsourcing in the past. Like, you're just hiring this faceless team of people, and the, the there's no accountability there. The team just, you know, says, okay, we're going to check all these boxes on your deliverables. Um, so... I think all that conspires to have much higher quality uh, contract work or temporary work or whatever you want to call it. Do you agree with that? Yes, I, totally. I think the technology has helped a lot in terms of how people work in distributed ways, like you mentioned Slack, Skype, um, all those tools, um, even pair programming, like you can do pair programming on screen, screen hero and all those things. So it, it has definitely helped in terms of bridging the gap, uh, the location gap between um, the workers and making it feel like, you know, we're all in the same room working together. And I guess not to mention Stack Overflow or Hacker News or these other things that st- sort of standardize how work is done, how code is written. Now, like the biggest debate we're going to have about style is tabs versus spaces or, you know, something inconsequential like that. Whereas in the past, it might just be like, uh, you know, you, you would get highly variable code quality. Probably code quality has flattened somewhat, gotten overall higher quality. Um, people, yeah. people, have a, people have a better universal understanding of what good code consists of. Exactly. And again, you have all these tools out there that are helping standardize code quality, like code climate and, you know, all those things that engineering teams are, are using to standardize how people write code.
there is also this idea that when you hire a contractor or a, is a contractor is that a bad word is that something i can classify on Della employees as or how do you contract how do you classify them well I, I wouldn't quite classify them as the contractor at least at least in the typical sense it's been used i think you know andela developers are just like any other engineers you will hire except they're working remotely like they're literally part of your team and you know, it's they are employees of your company. Well, do they have stock they're employees in the of Vandela, But they are, they are part of your team. They are engineers on your team, versus some contractors where you're, you know, you're pushing out projects to them and they're working on it and you know coming back to you with the results. Do they have stock in the company? Like, if if Microsoft hires Vandela employees, do they get stock? If they want to give our developers, then by by all means, I think. Okay. But most of the time, maybe not, or does it just vary? Um, I, I, I'm not too sure about the, the, oh, the okay. contracts, uh, but yeah. I, I see. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, just the reason I pointed out is because uh, I think there's a, a mistaken idea in technology companies that employees need to be receiving stock in order to do their best work. And I think mm-hmm. this is a really weird and mistaken idea. Uh, people work at companies for all sorts of different reasons, and people can be incentivized to do work that is uh, effective for the long term uh, by all kinds of ways. I mean, e- I, I, this is where I think the reputation system is really important. Uh, the fact that we have all these reputation systems, whether you're talking about Facebook or LinkedIn or just people mm-hmm. being a longstanding employee of Andela. So just these different reputation things that have become increasingly public, I think, hold people accountable in a way that uh, people used to talk about, oh, an employee needs equity in order to be accountable. And that, to me, seems less true today. Yeah, um, I think think that companies using equity to motivate people, I think it's more around giving people a sense of ownership into what they're building. So um, so I, I could see an argument that way where, you know, if I'm owning um, this thing that I'm building, then I'm, I'm more driven to, to see it succeed and make it succeed. Uh, but like you point out, like people have, you know, different motivation, I think, I think for me, I believe that uh, people are mostly motivated by, you know, they are, they want to be autonomous. Like you want to be able to like, you know, do your work and not necessarily be micromanaged and you want to be able to master your craft and like be able to, especially as software engineers, you want to be able to be the best at this that you're doing. And as well as, you know, I guess a sense of knowing that you are, building something that's you know bigger than you and that's that's something for a larger purpose so i think those three elements um are enough to motivate people um but i i I can see why some companies would offer um equity to kind of give give you a sense of ownership and like a sense of like we're all in this together and we all want to see this succeed You are the director of engineering at Andela. What does that role entail? Because we're talking about a company that the, the most of the core motivation is train people and then 
get them jobs at companies and there's obviously all kinds of ongoing management of that process but what what kinds of engineering work are you doing within Andela what kinds of technologies do you build to help facilitate this process sure um so as director of engineering my role is to build out all the internal tools and products of Andela and to in order to make all our different business units and departments work more efficiently and as well as I talked about apprenticeship, uh, so providing that final stage of learning for our Andela developers as they advance through that first stage of the program. Um, and in terms of the type of technology that we're building, it's you know, you know, um, a bunch of web tools, mobile tools, you know, um, automating workflows for people, and things like that. Yeah. Hmm. Can you talk through? some of the internal tooling that you're building and what you're what you what you have to support sure um i think one of the main tools we're building um is a dashboard um tracking all the data about our um developers so if you if you kind of think about um our pipeline right from the recruitment to the bootcamp to the, the initial phase of learning to apprenticeship, like we have kind of like a bunch of metadata about our developers that we need to track and, um, you know, so that we can make informed business decisions. And even during the bootcamp, like all the assessments, all those things are like we need um, to track all those things and build tools in place in order, uh, in order to track all those things. Um, so that's kind of... Um, type of technologies that we're building internally. I read your blog post about migrating from a monolith to microservices. We have talked through this migration process a bunch of times on Software Engineering Daily, but I don't know if we've talked about boot camps or moving from a monolith to microservices more often, but they are two polar opposites. Uh, well, I mean, pol- they're two different uh, things that have you know, rarely been discussed on the same show. Why don't you explain what was the monolith and what was the process of breaking it out into microservices? Just because I always like to hear different people talking through this architectural mm-hmm. process. It seems like quite a pattern that's common these days. Right. Um, so the, the monolith was around. So we had actually, we had a couple of monoliths really. Um, so we had one system, like I mentioned, one central dashboard tracking all the data about our developers. Then we had another system tracking or for assessments and things like that. And we had a bunch of other systems, like an isolated systems that kind of were responsible for a single business function. Uh, but what we realized was that a lot of the data in those systems was replicated, or at least it needed to be shared across all of those things. So especially as um, our, so especially in the way we work, it's kind of like a workflow where from recruitment, it's kind of like that pipeline that, that goes um, from recruitment through when um, a developer gets um, placed on a client engagement. So the same way our systems needed to work in that same manner where our, our, we, we needed to have data flowing from all of these different systems in a uniform way. Um, so it just made sense at that point um, to break apart all of these monoliths and kind of create a 
single backbone um, microservices architecture where we can have all these independent business units that are providing functionality to different apps and that can be scaled independently. And that's kind of how we started to migrate our monoliths to microservices. So that brings up a question. Does does Andela intend to build and sell its own software products at some point? Potentially, potentially. I think we are we are doing a lot of things in a lot of unique things, especially in the learning science side. Um, and building tools to support us in the way we practice learning and um, things like that. So potentially, um, once we can get it to work well enough for us internally, then we can release that, release it out to other people who might be interested. Well, what has been an interesting business model that seems to have emerged over the past 10 to 15 years is the model of you build one product that is kind of well uh, well-defined, something like you know Amazon selling books or Tesla selling cars, uh, and then over time the process of whatever you're building evolves into a product of its own. So, so with Andela selling engineers, uh, I don't know if that's the way you want you want it put, but that's kind of what it is. I mean, it's kind of like you know over time Amazon got AWS just kind of coincidentally they're like hey you know we realized we're really good at selling books because we architected this thing this well so why don't we just basically sell the infrastructure and then the same thing mm-hmm. is kind of going on with Tesla where they're saying now hey uh the what we're really good at is building these electric things and over time the gigafactory is going to be the product that's actually what we're going to mm-hmm. be that's the main product to be focused on because uh, it's it's kind of this bare bones infrastructure of something that makes something else, and simultaneously I could see Andela just because of a very unique churn of people passing through Andela's system. If the system itself is well architected, maybe there is some ancillary product that will fall out of a well engineered system where the system essentially brings in people and outputs great engineering talent, I'm sure yeah. there's going to be something interesting that, that comes out of that if it's well-engineered. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we're, we're definitely doing a lot of things in the learning sciences, how we track learning for people, how we you know, incentivize people to learn and all those things, how, how, um, how we get people to work um, in a distributed fashion more efficiently. So... So, yeah, in the future, I, I think potentially um, we can have products coming out of, you know, um, solving problems in the distributed um, work environment or the learning work environment. Hmm. I want to talk some about Africa. Um, how does the usage of computer technology in Africa differ from North America? The usage of computer technology... Um, I think um, in Africa, um, I've, I've had the most experience in West Africa, in East Africa, because so, we, we operate in Nigeria and Kenya. Um, but I think in general, um, Africa is very mobile. And um, there's a lot of, you know, peop- mobile is probably the primary way how people access um, online content. And... Um, 
but a lot of people are also using you know laptops and you're you're starting to see a lot of people like using um mobile uh rather uh wearable computing like you know apple watches android wear and all those things so people talk about africa doing this leapfrogging thing where nobody or well people don't care about the desktop as much you know you get your smartphone if that does the trick for you or if you don't want to buy a, a desktop or a laptop you just don't buy it does this lead to any interesting differences in how people live their lives if if your main computer is your smartphone rather than you know i think of the way i live my life i kind of use my smartphone throughout the day but the laptop or my desktop is really my hub and i'm kind of like mm-hmm. not doing any intensive stuff on my phone i'm just kind of like you know i'm going to save that complex email i'm going to have to write i'm going to save it for later i'm not going to do it on my phone I'm going to wait till I get home. What kinds of things do people do differently because the smartphone is the primary computer? Uh, I think um, a lot of people, um, for example, in Nigeria, use the mobile phone to access online content. So social media you know, articles and all of that. And um, a lot of people kind of just use the desktop at work um, and um, throughout the, after work or throughout the day are mostly on their mobile phones and um, accessing um, online content that way. And if you think about also, you know, internet access, you know, not a lot of people have access to the internet um, outside of work where, you know, they have the infrastructure and, you know, the money to set up um, um, internet and um, so a lot of people end up um, using you know their mobile devices to access online content and they also kind of have those um, little um, portable um, Wi-Fi um, hotspots um, that they carry around um, to access the, the um, internet as well what are the other tech companies in Africa that are inspiring to you? Uh, there is, I think, one tech company that is inspiring to me is Conga. Um, and it's one of the largest, if not the largest, e-commerce site um, currently in Nigeria. And um, I think they are um, very inspiring in terms of how they are, you know, not only just kind of replicating, you know, something that's working in the West, like, you know, Amazon um, coming, uh, take, using that and replicating that here, but they're actually using technology to improve like the user experience and improve the, you know, the, the quality of their product. Um, and they are, you know, using, you know, te- cutting edge technologies like, you know, progressive web apps to make the mobile experience better and things like that, considering um, the limited connectivity that um, a lot of people have in Africa. So I think um, Conga is probably one one of the tech companies that, that I, I admire. Hmm. I did an interview about a year ago with these two brothers from Africa, Osine and Anasi Ikianosime, and they I think they introduced me to the people from Andela who got me in touch with you, which I appreciate. 
Uh, and I, over time, I've become friends with these two brothers. They're teenagers. Uh, they built Crocodile Browser. I encourage anybody to check out Crocodile Browser if you're looking for an interesting browser. Um, and what has struck me, a number of things struck me about that conversation that I had, the interview I did with Osina and Anesi. One thing was just that they were so similar in to, so similar to me in terms of the content that they were consuming because they were they're software engineers they're interested in tech they're interested in entrepreneurship it was basically like i was talking to somebody in silicon valley and i like i i couldn't notice any striking cultural differences or or anything it was this very interesting moment for me that was sort of like a this feeling of globalization um I don't know, it kind of made me feel warm and fuzzy, but what what are the what are the ways in which African engineers are different than American engineers? Are there are there striking differences or like are there not many differences? I think um I think it depends. I think it depends on how much exposure the African engineers have had. Um so I think a lot of the if a lot of the engineers are like um, tech companies um, or, or even self-taught engineers that are just generally really interested in technology um, are very similar um, because they are really interested in, in technology and just software craftsmanship. So they, they, they kind of expose themselves to um, how things are done elsewhere and how, you know, the best companies are doing things. So they are, you know, following blogs, following podcasts and, and, and all those things. Um, but then the ones that don't really have, I've had that exposure, um, you know, are, you know, different and, um, you probably wouldn't be able to relate to them as much. For example, you know, you will see some engineers that have never used GitHub as of like, you know, two years ago, um, and kind of were like, you know, sharing, um, their code base, you know, using drives and things like that. So I think, um, that's um, one thing where Andela is trying to kind of change that uh, that space um, and or helping change that space where we're trying to provide our developers that exposure into you know what um, other companies are doing, what other um, technology companies are doing, so that they can you know bring that back here into the African tech ecosystem and you know start you know uh, flourishing. The whole space. Hmm. What are the problems in Africa that you think will be solved by technology in the near future? I think. I think in in a country like Nigeria, I think the public transportation system will be solved by technology. I think the traffic issues will be solved by technology. Um, I think, yeah, those two definitely, I I think, will be solved by technology. Cultural issues? What about cultural issues like gender gender equality or this kind of stuff? Do you think that's improved by social networks or... Uh, but by social networks, um, perhaps I think I think I think it probably be more improved as we start seeing more, you know, 
female founders, like female tech founders and like yeah. seeing more females being interested in technologies and like, you know, you know, joining um, companies like Andala, you know, because they want to be um, software engineers and like taking positions are, you know, the thriving tech companies in Africa. Sure. And Andela is a leader in making that happen, obviously. Um, so what about the internet infrastructure in Africa? Um, how, how good is it? And what do you think of these efforts to improve it? Like, I think Google's got something, um, Facebook with the free basics stuff. What do you think of these efforts? I think, I honestly, I think the internet, um, the, the actual um, internet connectivity is is actually not that bad. Um, I think I remember the first time that I, when I, when I um, moved back to Africa and came to Nigeria, um, I initially had those thoughts, like, how is the internet connectivity uh-huh. here? Um, but like in our office, like the internet connectivity is very strong. We have, you know, fiber optic and even the, the MiFi and like the hotspots that people have are like really good and have um, internet connectivity. I think the, the problem is, is, is very expensive um, to set up or, or uh, to acquire. Um, so I think all those initiatives are, would be really helpful in order to have, give a broader um, set of people access to internet when it's, you know, more, more, when it becomes more commodity, like, like the same way it is in, in, um, in the U S for example. Yeah, that is exactly how I feel. Uh, that's what you know. I've, I've I've tried to report on this free basics stuff some, particularly when that you know the the India stuff happened and 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 I guess free basics was kind of like voted against or something like that, and I was I just didn't understand at all because like even if even if you have this internet service that maybe is like not entirely neutral, well who who would vote against better internet connectivity. It's just so right. <laughs> insane to me. Yeah. That was Absolutely. just so insane to me. Um, oh, gosh. Anyway, uh, and it was, it was, I don't know, it's funny because of the people who were, uh, apparently like the people that were voting against it were the ones who had good internet, as I understood. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, what's, you know, we're, we're, we're wrapping up near the end of our time. Um have any companies copied Andela? Have there been any copycats or maybe similar businesses um, that have sprouted up in Africa doing a similar thing? Because obviously, you can, there's you know you, there are so many applications. There's no way that you can get the entire fire hose of talent that's coming your way. Right. Um, I I believe in Nigeria there has been one. I believe that's doing something similar. Um, but I, I I think that in you know in the major um, tech hubs in Africa, like Nigeria, Kenya, and South Africa, um, there are, you know, similar things, not exactly the same thing, but there's like a, a lot of, um, companies that are, you know, trying to develop like that talent and like get people to be interested in technology and software development in general. What's in the future for Andela? What have we not touched on? <sighs> that's, that's an interesting question. Um, 
I think, I think in the future of Andala, I think it's to to get a larger footprint on the African continent. I think and really get more and more people to apply to the program and join the program, go through the program. Um, I think that's kind of like in the immediate future. I think in the, the really long future, the 10 years from now, I think what we really want is like, you know, all of these really talented people to now, you know, go back into, you know, the African tech ecosystem and kind of like create this ripple effect of just really, really great technology companies that are starting to get created and solving all of the problems in Africa and just, you know, improving the lives of everyone. Yeah. And the are there challenges associated with scaling? Because when I talk to these boot camps, it sounds like scaling is so hard because you need a lot of people to be doing the training as well as uh, so, so, so like you know many technology companies like software companies so companies that are totally based in software like a social network or something you just buy more servers and mm-hmm. that's how you scale but if you're if you if you're an organization like Andela and you need to have people that are doing training you need to have all these humans in the loop it's not as much of a straightforward equation. So is that is that a kind of a bottleneck to scaling where you really need to have really solid talent that uh, in order to scale? Right. So I think I think um, in the beginning um, we need to find these people to you know facilitate the learning of um, our developers, and they need to have the experience obviously um, to be able to do that. But I think. Um, as we scale and as our own developers are becoming really, really good and are advancing their level in their levels, um, we can start seeing them supporting um, our, we can start seeing our uh, pipeline supporting itself where you have all of these great people that have already gone through a certain stage of the pipeline and they're like really good and more experienced and then have them come back and like support, mentor, uh, run the, the learning uh, facilitation and all those things and kind of like our, you know, our business kind of supporting itself that way. So that's kind of how we're thinking about scaling. Yeah, sort of like the Y Combinator effect where people who go through Y Combinator, the number one thing that they want to do is go back to Y Combinator somehow. Yeah. All right, Bryce. Well, uh, this has been an awesome conversation. I am really intrigued by Andela, and I hope to do more shows on it in the future. Um, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.